You're listening to At Home and Abroad on Irish Radio Canada, and earlier in the year we had a chat with Ronan McGreevy about his uh, recent publication, which was dealing with the Irish who joined the British Army and fought in World War One. Well, Mark McGowan has just published a book on this side of the Atlantic, which is uh, the Canadian Irish who participated in World War One. Mark, congratulations and welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Happy to, to talk to you about the book. Yeah. So, as I mentioned uh, in the intro there, we had a chat with Ronan McGreevy earlier in the year, and his focus was in the Irish who had signed up for the British Army and went out and fought. And given the commemorative year, this time that's going on in Ireland particularly, the role of the Irish in the British Army has been a topic that I guess Ireland is coming to grips with. Well, you focused on the Irish that were on this side of the Atlantic. That's right. And interestingly enough, I mean, most my book is specifically on Irish Catholics, although Irish Protestants, you know, come into the book frequently, uh, either in a, a positive way or in a negative way, you know, given the activities of French or Irish Catholics in Canada. So it's a really a focused study, but it's a study of uh, Irish Catholics coast to coast. So every province except Newfoundland, which of course was its own dominion uh, during the Great War, and uh, really a social study as well, because one of the, the harder parts of the book, and at least in terms of the research, was accessing and processing thousands of personnel files uh, in Ottawa and sort of bringing real people to light and sort of weaving uh, individual stories uh, through the, the, the broader narrative of uh, what was happening both in the church and uh, uh, in military life uh, for the Irish. So when you say it was cause to cause with the exception of Newfoundland at that time, uh, would the members of the forces have been reflective proportionately to the demographics of immigrants by province? Um, no, actually, I mean, the interesting thing is, is that because uh, the first wave of recruitment, so in late 1914, early 1915, you had a predominance of uh, Scottish, English, uh, Irish, both Catholic and Protestant expats. So you had had a, a Canadian expeditionary force that was heavily weighted, almost 60%, uh, to those who had been recent immigrants from the UK. It's only as you move into the second and third phases of voluntary recruitment, so that's through 1915 and 1916, that you get an increasing number of uh, Canadian-born uh, men and women, because I have a data set of nurses as well uh, that uh, that, that join the, the CEF. So by the end of the war, the balance has tipped the other way to Canadian-born. Actually, most of the Irish Catholics in my data sets, and, and these are thousands, um, are largely Canadian-born Irish. So these would be uh, second and third generation Irish Canadians. Um, almost all of the nurses, save for a handful, were were Canadian born. Some of Irish parents and some uh, of uh, a pair of grandparents. And um, one particular nurse, her name was Mona Whelan. She came from the Upper Ottawa Valley, but her father Stephen Whelan had come as a child during the famine in 1847 and settled in Renfrew County. And she was uh, one of the youngest of 13 children. And uh, there's an, an interesting link then between the famine in that family, uh, the Whelan family, and she volunteers in Montreal as a nurse. 
and serves for several years before she's invalided uh, back home. So it, these stories are very interesting in terms of uh, we have Irish-born who actually go back to fight. I had a, a Mulholland who went back to Cork and actually brought his entire family with him so that he could join uh, the um, the army once it was uh, training in uh, in Great Britain and we have those who are of Irish descent here and they come from all over I've done micro studies in the book of uh, of the Irish of Halifax who recruited very strongly uh, to the Canadian Expeditionary Force but that didn't come too much as a surprise to me because they recruited heavily during the Boer War as well uh, which was uh, 1899 to 1901 and uh, a strong, strong rural uh, Ottawa Valley uh, recruitment in the major cities and coming from all walks of life. So not just blue-collar workers, but white-collar workers as well. Professionals who uh, served as officers and dozens and dozens of Catholic priests who volunteered uh, as chaplains and some very colorful ones at that. So one of the aspects of that, of course, is uh, your examining the question of the perceived loyalty or how they would have perceived their loyalty. Yeah, that's right. And I, I operate on a theory that a colleague of mine developed oh, 40 years ago called the double minority, and that was Irish Catholics found themselves in Canada in a double minority situation. That is, they were a minority religious group among English speakers because most English speakers were Protestant. But even within their own church, the Catholic Church, they were a minority uh, to the the majority French-speaking population. And and during the war, Irish Catholics had to navigate between uh, these two poles. So, for example, when Henri Bourassa and many French Canadians opposed uh, certain aspects of the war effort. Uh, Irish Catholics had to be very careful as to not publicly give scandal to the church by disagreeing uh, um, vociferously uh, and trying to bend over backwards to give credence to some French-Canadian arguments, while at the same time professing their loyalty so as not to alienate themselves from the from Anglo-Protestant majority. And uh, it's it, how they how they manage to do this is with great skill, and that's why I see the church as being critical here because it was prominent churchmen, bishops, and and clerics who helped uh, sort of formulate what the Irish Catholic position was at any given time. So take for example uh, on the issue of 1916, uh, which for American Catholics was one of those lightning rods uh, in terms of uh, opposition to Britain, whereas when you read the correspondence of, of Irish Catholics in Canada, the newspapers uh, as well, um, they're very much negative on what happens in Dublin uh, during the Easter Rising. Of course, they don't like the summary executions of the leaders, but they maintain a strong position of constitutional uh, ways of achieving home rule. So their support for John Redmond, the vast majority of Irish Catholics in Canada support uh, the Redmondite movement and constitutional ways of of, uh, of seeing Ireland have what they would say is, is what Canada has as well, and that is you know autonomy within the British Empire. On another issue like conscription, where most French Canadians were opposed to conscription, um, Irish Catholics are, are divided, but the clergy tries to navigate the church in a position that satisfies winning the war and at the same time not seriously dividing the church. In, in fact, some bishops openly 
uh, you know, support conscription. In fact, Bishop Michael Francis Fallon of London, Ontario, whose parents were both Irish, uh, becomes a strong supporter of the Borden government uh, on the issue of conscription. Um, and he's a very uh, polarizing figure. French Canadians don't like him all that much for, for other reasons. But, uh, I mean, you do, have, you do have tensions as the Irish try to carve out a place for themselves between the two charter groups in Canada. Um, and when the Irish situation deteriorates at the end of the war, it's actually Father John J. O'Gorman, who's a wounded chaplain from the Ottawa Valley, uh, who, who constructs an argument of what he calls double duty, that we have a duty to see that Ireland has constitutional government that's, that's uh, independent of Westminster, and yet at the same time we also have a duty to win the war. So he tried to gainsay uh, a certain radical element among Canadian Irish Catholics, which was very small, saying, well, we should stop any support for the war until Ireland gets its freedom. He said, no, that was the wrong way to approach it. And I think O'Gorman represents uh, a greater majority of the Catholics, at least I've studied, uh, in you know the Great War context here. So, Mark, you mentioned that um, well, Holland went back to Cork, and you were focusing uh, heavily on what are um, the descendants of Irish-born Canadians. But did you have the opportunity to analyze those that were actually Irish-born uh, who signed up for the Canadian Army? Yeah, they're they're part of the um, they're part of the equation, and they they constitute a small uh, portion of the uh, uh, Irish Catholic recruits here, and they come from all over Ireland. They're all young men. Um, they recruit in pretty much the same patterns as other Canadians, be they Catholic or Protestant. Uh, they end up in the same uh, you know uh, <clears throat> battlefield situations as others. Um, it, it, what the remarkable thing is that they're not terribly distinctive from uh, other soldiers in the way in which they recruit, uh, they, they behave, uh, and then are demobilized. And one interesting point, though, I think, is that um, there's often been a case uh, made uh, by some on the subject that somehow after 1916, um, uh, Irish Catholics were just not interested in recruiting anymore. And actually, that's just false. I mean, I took a, a battalion, the 199th Battalion out of Montreal, which was very Irish and very Catholic, uh, and tracked its, uh, its recruitment and saw that as many soldiers recruited after May 1916 into that battalion as before. Um, and then the other myth in Montreal is that they were broken up once they got to the UK because they were Irish, which was, again, false because all battalions raised in that period, regardless of uh, their, their size or ethnicity or what have you in Canada, were broken up to fill in the gaps uh, that uh, the earlier and older battalions uh, had faced after you know years of fighting uh, at the front. In fact, yeah, the 208th Toronto Irish Battalion was actually mostly Protestant, and it was broken up at the same time as the 199th, which was mostly Catholic. So, I mean, it was uh, what was good for the goose was good for the gander. And the other irony there is the 208th was mostly Protestant, but most of the fundraising was was done by Irish Catholic women in the city of Toronto, um, uh, led by. Uh, uh, by the, uh, the the wife of uh, Ambrose Small, a very controversial uh, theater owner, uh, Teresa Corman Small was was considered the queen of the battalion because of her fundraising efforts, and she was Catholic. So. Mark, you mentioned that this uh, book is focusing predominantly uh, on Irish 
Canadian Catholics, and you've mentioned there that the various battalions that uh, they were pro predominantly Protestant. Um, I presume, or, or do you intend to look at that aspect of the equation at some stage in the future? Well, actually, what I've done is I've tried to integrate as best I can what, what Irish Protestants were doing uh, within that context. So I do spend some time exploring the 208th Battalion, which was primarily Irish and Protestant. I also look at the way in which the Orange, Orange Order engaged uh, uh, Catholic war efforts or tried to, uh, in a say, gainsay. Uh, some of the Catholic efforts, but I also look at the way Irish Protestants and Irish Catholics got together uh, on a variety of issues. One of them was the Catholic Army Huts program in late 1917-1918, and essentially that was to set up recreation centers both in the UK and closer to the front for all soldiers, regardless of religious denomination. And if you can imagine, in Toronto, the alleged Belfast of North America, you have Catholics and Protestants going door to door to collect for Catholic army huts under the aegis of uh, the Knights of Columbus. So, I mean, you, you get um, many episodes within the war where um, the orange and the green work together. Uh, for common cause, and uh, Catholic and Protestant officers working together, um, the Archbishop of Toronto and the very orange mayor of Toronto uh, working together, uh, Tommy Church. Um, so I've tried to weave some of that narrative uh, into this book, but uh, my current project is entirely different. It deals with Irish famine orphans, so I've gone back in time by about 70 years. So. Of those that had been recruited and served, uh, were there many who were uh, awarded merit, um, medals of, of honor, medals of merit? Yeah, we have, um, for example, we have a number of Catholic chaplains, Irish Catholic chaplains, who were awarded uh, uh, the Military Cross because officers earned the Military Cross. Uh, one of them was Ambrose Madden, who was originally from Eastern Canada, but spent most of his time as a priest in British Columbia, and he was awarded uh, uh, the DSO as well and mentioned in dispatches. Many of them were mentioned in dispatches. Many of the foot soldiers won uh, the military medal uh, for bravery. In fact, one of the things I discovered in the whole process was that my great uncle, uh, who was a, an Irish uh, Glaswegian who had emigrated to Canada and fought, actually won the military medal with two bars, which essentially means he won it three times. So, uh, yeah, there was uh, uh, distinction on the field. And there were Irish Catholics that were, you know, subject to field punishment for things like uh, uh, being away without leave and uh, uh, being disorderly or, uh, you know, barking back at officers. I mean, in, in many ways, they just resembled many of the other soldiers around them. So, in you mentioned that uh, your research uh, brought you to Ottawa and where you were able to find um, a lot of data. Where else were, would your sources have been? Well, definitely Ottawa was critical, but I had sources in local archives uh, in Ontario, uh, in the archives of Ontario. I visited most of the diocesan archives across Canada, so I spent a lot of time in Halifax and in, in uh, Quebec City and Montreal, um, Vancouver, uh, Calgary, uh, Winnipeg. I got into newspaper collections across the country. Uh, Winnipeg was important for that because of the Western Canadian news. Uh, obviously, Toronto was an important place, a number of archives here uh, in the city. Uh, 
a lot of materials now are online. When I started, they weren't, and I was able to uh, to mine uh, personnel files online, ones that I hadn't done in person. I did work in Dublin, uh, in the Archdiocese of Dublin archives. I did some work in the John Redmond papers uh, at the National Library in Dublin. They were invaluable, showing the Canadian connections between the constitutional Irish Home Rule Movement and uh, many prominent Canadian politicians, uh, particularly in the Liberal Party, uh, who were, you know, asked their opinion about various ways to solve the Irish question. Um, in the in the Diocese of, of London uh, in Ontario, I had access to Bishop Fallon's diaries and personal correspondence. So. The, the, the whole book is really weaving dozens and dozens of archival materials together and some online sources and, of course, some books that had already been written on the war in Ireland, in the UK, the United States, and uh, a few in Canada, but not much, none on this particular topic. Mark, what would the Archdiocese archives have delivered that, um, what type of specific information would you have been able to glean from those? Oh, it, you know, it, right across the board. Uh, I mean, there's, uh, there's uh, first of all, the bishop's correspondence, uh, bishop's speeches, um, uh, local circular letters that went out to each parish. Oftentimes, depending on the diocese, there were uh, uh, requests that each parish priest take a census of the number of men in the parish. Uh, who had uh, either enlisted or who intended to serve. Uh, local parishes had honor rolls at the end of the war. That's how I was able to extract a lot of the names to, to search uh, in the databases. Um, there would be um, diocesan newspapers, diocesan newsletters, um, letters from average, ordinary Irish Canadians to the bishop describing uh, experiences of the war, some soldiers who wrote to the bishops, uh, some parents who wrote to the bishops as well. As well. So, I mean, depending on the archive, uh, there was uh, some archives strictly, you know, manuscript materials from the bishops' papers, and others it was just a treasure trove of uh, posters and handbills, uh, uh, speeches, and the like. Very, some some archives very very rich. It's fascinating in, in every aspect of it because there's so many different layers that you have described and as you mentioned earlier on it's not just a, a, a chronology or a, a, it's, you're saying it's a weaving of what is the social fabric that was happening at the time also. Mm -hmm. So Mark, if someone wants to get their hands on, on the book, where can they get their hands on it? Well, most major bookstores should have it. It's called The Imperial Irish. Uh, Canada's Irish Catholics Fight the Great War, and it's published by McGill-Queen's University Press in Montreal, um, but it would be available uh, through booksellers online and directly from McGill-Queen's Press, and sometimes they offer a discount too. So, uh, And it's reasonably priced for a hardback, and uh, uh, I hope people would find it very interesting reading. You mentioned you're working on a different project. Now you're jumping back about 70 years. Do you want to give us a little flavor of, of where that's coming and going? Sure, yeah. I had, I had done work on the, the Great Irish Famine Migration to Canada before uh, the particular project, and uh, uh, the fruits of earlier labors was a little book called Death or Canada on the Irish Famine Migration to Toronto, and then a film that RTE and uh, Global here in Canada it was a joint Canada-Ireland production um, I was part of that. 
So this is actually focusing on famine orphans. And so I have uh, five concentrations of orphans in St. John, New Brunswick, Quebec, Montreal, Kingston, and Toronto. And, and uh, my researchers and I are looking to find out just what actually happened to these children. Um, and we've challenged some of the long-standing myths of them actually being adopted, of them actually being orphans, and we're uh, we're looking at you know what becomes uh, of them once they uh, move into the Canadian interior or move on to the United States. So it's a big project. Uh, um, in fact, uh, the number of orphans that we're working with in Quebec City alone uh, numbers 702. And so through census data and parish registers and other routinely generated records, we're trying to basically do genealogy backwards and figure out what happened. But we've had some really interesting, you know, discoveries. For example, a uh, young Irish lad uh, who was uh, taken in by another Irish family in Quebec City and his granddaughter uh, was appointed to the Canadian Senate by uh, 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 John Diefenbaker in the 1950s. Uh, we have photographs uh, provided by descendants of, of orphans, three and four generations. We've seen, uh, well, let me put it this way, we've seen that actually the, they were legally adopted. Most of them worked as indentured labor for French-Canadian farmers, uh, girls as domestics and boys in the fields and others. Uh, we found three children that were actually placed with a, an Irish hotel owner uh, south of Quebec, and uh, he was basically using them as cheap labor. So it's a very different story from what we see in the Canadian Heritage Minute of Molly Johnson and uh, uh, and her her cohort being adopted, so to speak, by French-Canadian families. So we're challenging a few Canadian myths at the same time. When are you hopeful you'll have that coming to fruition? Oh, that'll be a couple of years because of the kind of finely uh, granulated research that this takes. I mean, looking through this, it uh, four students and I, it took us three months just to go through the 600, 619 uh, uh, orphans from Quebec City alone, and uh, we're still working on those. And uh, we have the other four cities uh, in, our, in our sites within the next year. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for taking the time. It's been fascinating and uh, certainly um, educational. And what you're working on sounds most interesting and, as you say, may debunk some of the myths that are out there and present a whole new picture on the heritage of uh, a lot of people who have come through and are descendants of the famine in Canada. Um, wish you every success with the book. and. Uh, I uh, hope that as the next one does come to fruition, we get an opportunity to follow up and talk also. Be pleased to do that. Thanks so very much for having me.